This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The share it with a friend deal. Even if that friend is yourself. Your McDonald's, your rules. Live your best morning with BOGO breakfast sandwiches only on the McDonald's app. Now buy one bacon, egg, and cheese McGriddles or sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and get a second one free. Valid for item of equal or lesser value. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one per day. Excludes one, two, three dollar menu. Visit McDonald's app for details. Download and registration required. This podcast is proudly in association with Pitch Sport Football, the app that allows you to interact with other West Ham fans, pick your starting eleven, and participate in fan time videos. This app is absolutely free, so like I've done, like X has done, and like thousands of other West Ham fans have done, get this downloaded if you haven't already. That's Pitch Sport Football. You're listening to the West Ham Way podcast with Dave and X. Oi, oi! Good evening and welcome to the West Hamway podcast of myself, Dave Walker, and serial YTK blogger, XWHU employee. Tonight, myself and X chat to Canadian keeper Craig Forrest, who not only represented his country, but also spent half a decade at West Ham. We'll be talking about the highs and lows of Craig's career, whilst having a few laughs along the way. That's all coming up on tonight's show. Craig, it's great to have you on tonight, mate. How are you keeping you well? Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope everybody is over there as well. I hear that uh, in the UK, obviously, things aren't uh, great, you know, and mm. uh, sports and football has been put on the back burner for obviously a long time. Hopefully that can change. The Bundesliga is back up and running, but I think we've got to be safe here and, uh, you know, think carefully about moving forward in the right manner as as much as we love the game and, we want to see it back. We have to make sure that everybody's healthy and safe uh, in the meantime. So it's going to be a challenge. But yeah. thanks for asking. Everything's good. 
Good, good. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Everyone's missing their football and their sports, but of course, you know, your health comes before anything else. And and coupled with that, to be quite honest, after the season West Ham have had, if someone offered me the chance to scrap the season and start again next year, I'd bite your hand off, personally. But <laughs> <laughs> that's just me. Yeah, I think there's a few clubs like that. Yeah, everybody, <laughs> clubs clubs that uh, are down the relegation area, you know, they're, <laughs> they might have a few extra cases of COVID. Well, yeah. I, think, I think COVID's in the running for player of the year for some of these clubs. <laughs> you might save them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Craig, you joined Ipswich Town in 1984, which was the year after I was born. Not trying to make you feel old or anything, but just putting it into perspective. Um, how does a young Canadian keeper get noticed by a club like that? Well, um, I mean, in Vancouver, I was... I mean, I started the game quite late. I was playing sort of traditional North American sports, basketball, ice hockey here in Canada, doing some uh, judo and whatnot. But I got into it quite late. I was 12 years old, uh, worked really hard over the few years. And uh, long story short, there was a guy in Vancouver who was part of the football scene, had connections. He was actually born and raised in Ipswich, had connections with an old chief scout there, Ron Gray and uh, got me a trial at Ipswich. He could figure that out. If I paid my way to come from Canada, they would, they would certainly have a look at me. <laughs> and I uh, had a couple backup plans. I had Dundee United and West Bromwich Albion as a backup to go try out. Um, really? But I didn't get as far as that, thankfully. And Ipswich was a, a great place to start my career, be part of it. It was a fantastic club. I mean, it was coming out of the golden generation of, you know, winning the FA Cup in 78 and the UEFA Cup in 81 when it was really a, a massive uh, tournament. Mm. Uh, it, was a, it was a big club to sign with at that time. A lot of amazing things uh, were going on. But unfortunately, as soon as I arrived, I think the next season, they got relegated uh, from the top flight. And uh, we're, we were in that division, the second division, for I don't know, six or seven years before we got promoted into the Premier League. Uh, again in the inaugural year for 1992. I mean, during your time at Ipswich, you were you were managed by John Lyle, who is obviously a, a West Ham um, like legend in, in terms of management. And what what was he like to play under and, and, and as a man? He was amazing. Uh, John Lyle was by far and away the best manager I ever had. Um, not just his ability to win football games and put teams out, and you know manage things on the fly but just his personality uh he was larger than life everybody respected him wanted to spend time with him would talk football forever and ever and obviously with his history at west ham and talking about ron greenwood and you know him coming through the the ranks there as a player and a coach um and then for me to move to west ham uh later on uh it was basically a dream to have worked under John Lyle and then ended up at West Ham, a club where he really made his name at a special guy, missed him every day and uh, just a terrific footballing man. Nice, nice, nice tribute there, Craig. Uh, talking about Phil Parks for a second, because didn't you spend mm. some time with him at Ipswich? That's right. I did. Yeah. Big Phil. What a, what a gentleman he is, by the way, one of the nicest people in football mm. and one of the very best goalkeepers I ever saw play even after he was retired and was my goalkeeper coach at Ipswich um, just in training when he would join in he was just a different level really was um, never 
seeing such a big man be able to softly catch a ball. Um, and that wasn't just because he was a little overweight. <laughs> Great hands, soft, like just a, just a terrific guy. And uh, to be a goalkeeper coach uh, for me at Ipswich with John Lyle was just just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And, and the experience of these guys that have been through it all and won things and, uh, and delivered was uh, immensely uh, helpful for a young goalkeeper trying to, trying to make it. Mm, can you can you remember any specific lessons that you learned from Phil that have stuck with you throughout the years? Uh, not anything in particular, other than his mindset about going into games. He was very calm about things. He wasn't flustered. He didn't seem to get nervous about things. He took things in his stride. Told me not to get too up when things go well, and also when things don't go so well, and you get hammered nine nil and seven by Manchester United. We'll be coming <laughs> to that later. Like <laughs> <laughs> I might as well bring that up before you guys. Do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it helped me. It helped me later on to know that the game isn't going to always go your way. Uh, there's going to be ups and downs. People will think that yours as good as your last game that's just the reality of the sport result driven game um you know all these different experiences uh it's, it's it's an up and down sport just like life and you have to be able to deal with it and it certainly helped later in my career of trying to deal with the ups and downs of, of the footballing spectrum and certainly you know just living in that world at the top flight was uh, incredibly competitive and incredibly challenging but uh I would have never had it any other way. Mm. Um, you mentioned the being around for the opening day of the Premier League season. You're actually one of only 13 foreign players that are involved on, the, on that first game. Um, how much of an honour is that for you? Well, it, it is, of course. And I remember somebody bringing that up back and I think it wasn't until maybe 94 or something like that, that somebody actually brought that up because the foreign influence was coming in and wasn't really something we thought about in 1992. Um, and also I got to England in 1984. So I'd spent eight years already in the UK. I didn't really feel like a foreigner. So yeah. I, <laughs> I might've sounded like one, but I didn't feel like one. And uh, I was like, oh yeah, I guess I technically am a foreigner. So uh, that was something, but uh, very honored. Uh, just to be part of the Premier League, to be part of the top flight. That was what I wanted to, to be a part of at some stage of my career. Mm. And obviously Ipswich uh, was a great club to do that. They had a history in the top flight, but that's what I really wanted to do. And the, the name change to the Premier League was seen as just that at that time. It, it didn't really influence the players other than uh, it was called the Premier League first, second, third. And, that was it. Uh, but it seemed to evolve into something different and uh, unique and brilliant. And uh, uh, I'm just uh, just honored to have been part of the inaugural year and be part of the Premier League for, for years after that. Yeah, I mean, we could put you on the spot now and ask you to name the other 12 foreign players, but uh, <laughs> we, we, won't, we, won't, we won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember a few goalkeepers, Schmeichel, Hans Sagers. There was another yeah. one as well, a QPR. Uh, Polish player. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to name them all, but uh, I think uh, Cantona was one of them. Yeah, that would be a good shot. I did actually see it on, um, we said, I actually did oh, when I was doing the research because I do all the hard work for the show, David. <laughs> and when I, was doing, when I was doing the research, I did see the name. So as you're talking, I'll bring it up for, for old time's sake. 
Yeah, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't surprise me if that's the sort of question X knows the answer to. I mean, his his party trick is that you could give him any country in the world and he'll tell you the capital of it, and it's something that he <laughs> really takes seriously. And you want to see him. He falls into a world of his own. It's quite painful to watch at times. He's a nerd like that. So whilst he asks, whilst he asks you the question, I'm sure he probably knows the answer. And <laughs> I'll ask him after the show. <laughs> I can't actually name a few of them, but I'll get the the actual list up in a minute. <laughs> um, Craig, I mean, you, you you think about the game back then, and you talk about there only being 13 foreign players. I mean, in today's game. It's littered with foreign players. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the game's transitioned into so many foreign players playing these days? Well, obviously, the, the money that's offered up in the Premier League is always going to attract the very best if you're willing to pay. Um, as well as in England, you found that clubs going after English players or players at English clubs would have to overpay. Or you'd mm. get that same quality of player perhaps in South America for half the price or less. So there is that um, clubs, great players in lower divisions, you know, you're asking big money for them. And uh, the, the clubs had it, uh, found it that it was easier to go abroad and, and get uh, the same value for, for less money. Um, but inevitably it's, it's, you know, where the money is in the Premier League or wherever that is at any particular time, will attract the very best players in the world if you've got that uh, type of finances to do so. And the Premier League is unbeatable uh, when it comes to that. So it has been a big change. Uh, It's an interesting one as far as the English national team and developing players through the league system. Uh, We see that in other countries, not with the best leagues in the world, but being able to produce great national teams, the German side, you know, the Bundesliga is a great league, of course, but it's not the Premier League. produce great national teams, but their owners are all German. And we look at in England with, you know, American owners, Arab owners, um, owners from all around the world, Asian. Um, do you think they care about the English national team? No, of course they don't. Not really. They just care about their business. Um, so the business is completely different in, in the way it's run in the Premier League. Um, and I think we've lost in football a connection to what used to be the owners did Ipswich uh, it was the cobbled family that were local and they had a uh they were part of the fabric of the of the community if you like we're losing that a little bit uh, in the Premier League certainly with foreign ownership coming in they don't have a connection to that local uh community and that seems to make a difference in my, my view. And if you look at Newcastle and what the potential is there for them to be sold to, to basically the Saudi Arabians, I'm not sure that's the way a little bit better and uh, make sure that they get owners that, they, uh, that they, they want to be part of football and not just for potentially a short-term solution. Mm, interesting. Uh, those thirteen players, <laughs> I've loaded them up. You, you were right with some of the keepers. So there's one. One was at QPR, and you have to excuse my pronunciations on some of these players. I'm quite, quite famed for getting them wrong. Um, but this is uh, there was Jan Sky School at QPR. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. Hans Sagers at Wimbledon. I think you mentioned him. Um, Roland Nielsen was a Swedish right back at Sheffield Wednesday. There's you. There's Andre Kanchelskis at Manchester United. There was Peter Schmeichel like you said, uh, Michel Vonk at Man City, Rodney Rosenthal at Liverpool, Gunnar Haller at Oldham, Eric Cantona, he said, um, Robert 
uh, was he sharp? <laughs> played oh, yeah, he's a Polish guy. <laughs> yeah, that's the Polish guy, yeah. <laughs> played for Everton. And, um, that's and, and just Limpar at Arsenal. And then John Jensen at Arsenal as well. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a unique group to be in there. Mm. Quite, quite an achievement. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think my last game I played, uh, one of my last games was West Ham against Liverpool. And I think there were 17 different nationalities that were involved in that game. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Wow. Really, I mean, it's very, sometimes that you look at the teams now, and you, you're actually looking how many English or British players they're actually playing, and often it's two, three maximum now. So yeah, yeah it's changed huge, hugely. Mm. Um, so, sorry, back to my set questions rather than my uh, little detour <laughs> then. Um, so, you joined, so back to the football with West Ham. You joined West Ham in the summer of 1997 for approximately half a million. Um, how did the move come about? Well, it was, uh, I had spent a, a, a loan spell in 97 at Chelsea leading up to the summer. Went really well. I thought there was a chance I could end up being a permanent move. Uh, De Hoy came in, the Dutch goalkeeper, Ruud Hollis, ended up signing him. Mm. So I was kind of in limbo at that particular time. Uh, I was a little upset with Ipswich considering I'd spent 13 years there. And that loan spell at Chelsea uh, would have ended with me playing the FA Cup final in 1997 for Chelsea because of the injuries and I was in the team. Uh, Ipswich, there was no transfer uh, window at that time. So they then tried to play hard and ask for, I don't know what it was, but it was something that scared Chelsea off at that time for, for something that they could basically pick up for virtually nothing in the off season. So they didn't do that. And I was disappointed with Ipswich for that, considering, I guess, like I said, I've been there for so long and not that I deserved to play the FA Cup final, but it was certainly uh, something that uh, was available to me. Um, then the West Ham thing came up in the summer uh, of 97 and uh, I jumped at it I uh, had a great opportunity to go down there I ended up signing the guys were already in pre-season up in Scotland uh, I went and joined the side up there and uh, just click with the guys right away just really really enjoyed the teammates and the characters that we had in that side and and obviously a great bunch of young players coming through as well that turned into just world-class uh, over time Unfortunately, didn't always stay at West Ham, but um, it was uh, that's sort of how it came about. And, uh, and then from there on, uh, Les Seeley was my goalkeeper coach uh, for that time, and then obviously Ludo a little bit later. But it, it was uh, it was great and uh, something I wasn't sure I would ever do is play for another club. I mean, the, the loan spell at Chelsea is one thing, but I, I saw myself actually staying my entire career at Ipswich and. I'm glad I didn't. Uh, I'm glad I played somewhere else a couple of times because just the experience of playing in the big city of London, the differences, uh, the cultural differences of the city and the different parts of the city were just amazing. I love the the working class background of West Ham United, the east side. I remember I talked to John Lyle an awful lot about it and, uh, mm -hmm. and the neighborhood. I just loved it. Absolutely loved the fact that it was it was what it was West Ham and and the background and the history of the club was perfect for me and I, I just settled in right away and loved every minute of it. And just just think if you hadn't joined West Ham, you would never have got to come on this podcast. So it would have been uh, li life changing. <laughs> yeah, my whole career was driven just to be on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you admitted it, mate. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, how important was Harry Redknapp? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How, how important was Harry Redknapp in, in your decision as the manager? Well, you know, what, Harry, Harry uh, was he a part of my decision? Not sure if it was Harry as, as it was the club. I mean, we know managers come and go. We never know how long they're going to last for. It's a, it's a job you're hired to be fired in. And, uh, you, you know, like I said, they come and go. Um, but yeah. I never really – I didn't know Harry personally before I arrived, obviously. Um, mm. Got to know him very well and the way he worked and the way he run the football club was, was – was excellent. I, I, like I said, I thoroughly enjoyed it. He wore his heart on his sleeve. You knew exactly where he stood emotionally. Um, at any time he spoke what he, uh, spoke his mind. Everybody, everybody really sort of enjoyed being around that setting and with Harry being the way he was and standing up for the players. And yeah, you know, he was, he was a different guy, but he uh, certainly was somebody that I felt that had our backs and would support the players uh, through thick and thin, if he was a manager of the club. Mm. Do you remember what John Lyle used to say to you about West Ham when the move was on? Yeah, well, John Lyle had obviously been fired before uh, before that, and that was disappointing mm-hmm. because it wasn't John Lyle's fault. Uh, like I said, it's a results-driven uh, business, and unfortunately, managers take the rap for that. Uh, I felt somewhat responsible. I think the players felt somewhat responsible because it wasn't John's fault. He, he was primarily the reason why we stayed in the Premier League for three years before being relegated with the squad that we had. He was just amazing. Um, But obviously talking to him about West Ham, that had a bigger influence about me going to West Ham than, than uh, actually going to, to, for, to see Harry Redknapp or be part of Harry Redknapp's team, because I didn't really know Harry at that time, but I certainly knew John Lyle and he knew the club as well as anybody, of course. Mm, yeah, of course. And when you arrived at the club, obviously Ludo was there, um, mm-hmm. great goalkeeper. Do you think you were signed as a backup for Ludo or to genuinely challenge him for that number one spot? Um, a bit of both. Yeah, a bit of both. I mean, they certainly said that uh, the position is not going to be his for sure, although you have to respect the fact that Ludo was world-class. He didn't mm. show up in England, I don't believe, until he was 30. And talk about a, another gentleman in the game and, a, and, a, and an unbelievably good goalkeeper. Yeah. Great goalkeeper, coach. Uh, great mindset for that sort of thing. So, uh, as anything, as a footballer, as a goalkeeper especially, is only one position. You just go in and you work as hard as you possibly can. You wait for your opportunities. And then when you get in, you play as well as you can to stay in there as long as you can the fact is when you're playing at that level there's always somebody knocking at your door whether it's Ludo whether it's Shaku Kane whether it's David James whether it's Stephen Bywater and the list goes on and on everybody wants that position and uh, you all kind of understand that Um, the players the goalkeepers we always train together we understood that and you just get on with your job. And at the end of the day, it's not any of our decisions. It's the manager's decision. And we just did what we had to do from day in, day out to make sure we were ready for the next time or, or when we were in the team. One thing I found really interesting whenever I've watched football in the past and, and kind of looked at squads, not just West Ham, but across the game in general, is that there always seems to be a genuine rapport amongst the goalkeepers. And I kind of find that a little bit hard to believe. I mean, whilst I'm sure the goalkeepers get on, there must be that element of rivalry. And have you, have you ever kind of been involved across your career with 
rivalry that's kind of got a little bit out of hand and got personal with your competition in that position? You know, not really. Uh, most goalkeepers were, were pretty much the same. It didn't matter whether you were the first team goalkeeper or backup, but I had, I had great relationships with, with the mass majority of them. I mean, Bernard Lama, he ended up coming over in 98. He wanted see the situation there was he came over thought he could get a game because he wanted to get into the French squad for the world cup, which he ended up doing as a backup uh, for the French national team. So in 1998, but I knew that when he came there, he needed to play and he felt he needed to play to get that call up. So there's also pressure there on him, on mm. me, on the manager who brought him over, who probably said you should get some games when you come over here. So we had mm. that, but, uh, and Bernard was a little bit of a different cat, um, <laughs> but still hung out with him, you know, dealt with it, kind of deal with his mooch uh, swings and whatever he had to have. But, you know, goalkeepers really got along really well. We just sort of understand the situation, certainly after you've been around for a while. And, and uh, Bywater was another one who was a great young keeper coming through the system and unbelievable character. I remember when Ludo was injured once, and uh, he couldn't do any training. He, uh, everybody knew Ludo was here. He was six foot five, six foot six, big man. Uh, you look at him, you think, well, he's not a very good long distance runner. Well, <laughs> you'd be wrong about that. He was one of the best long distance runners in the club. And he embarrassed. That was the only thing we had a problem with. It was like when Ludo was at the front of the freaking team at preseason <laughs> running, and you got me and Shaka and David James and the young Bywater legging in behind you're like ludo you're killing us get back here we're allowed to be at the back of the bus here this is the way this is what it's all about for goalkeepers when we're long yeah so, yeah ludo is so fit so fit and anyway bywater they said to him when he first arrived at the club go for a little run with uh, ludo and he thought well that should be pretty simple i'm young he's old and he's big and he's probably not going to be a very good runner well, around Chadwell Heath, he lapped him. <laughs> <laughs> Did he really? He lapped him around Chadwell Heath and this young kid, Bywater, is just struggling. He's like, what the fuck? This guy's <laughs> That does surprise me, though. Yeah, me. I've never heard that before. And like you say, he doesn't strike you as what a typical long-distance long distance runner would be. And, and, and yeah. if you do think of long-distance runners, you would typically think of outfield players. So, yeah, you've shocked yes. me a little bit there. That's interesting. Oh, Ludo is, Ludo is a machine. Absolute machine. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm still in shock about the Ludo revelation. I know I never yeah. saw it coming, but uh, <laughs> um, you made your debut. We think in a three-nil cup win against uh, Villa. Um, yeah. What what was it like to eventually get on the pitch, you know, in front of the fans and actually experience what it was like to be? A, well, a that's interesting because I remember all my debuts really, really well, um, except for that one. Yeah. Really, the reason reason being was I was on international duty, and this was the thing that was ultimately very off-putting for me and scary almost is because I had done this flight Canadian national team had no money so they basically took you to the cheapest flights we were in El Salvador I had to fly from El Salvador to Belize Belize to Houston Houston Los Angeles Los Angeles Toronto Toronto London I get back to London I phone the club and I go I don't even know what day it is I've been on the plane for 15 hours been in a whole bunch of different cities I know there's a game tonight Obviously, I'm not involved. I'll go home and I'll come into the club tomorrow. And they said, no, 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 no. 
Ludo got hurt in training this morning. We need you to play. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I went straight to the ground after this worldwide tour, trying to get back from the national team and get thrown into the team. And I didn't even know where, like I was just, what I was just thinking is that if I make mistakes, nobody's going to give two craps about my traveling. They're just going to say he's shit. And <laughs> that's the end of it. So there's all that. And when you want to get into your, your, your opportunities, you'll take them any way you can get them, of course. But you kind of forget that sometimes it doesn't always work out the way you want to and to be, you know, a hundred percent ready for that game that you would love to be considering this is your big opportunity. And it went well. We hammered Villa. I remember on that day, I don't think I had an awful lot to do. And uh, it was a comfortable result for us, uh, thankfully. And uh, got through it unscathed. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting game. I, wanted, I guess I, I just don't really remember much about other, other than I was winning it and uh, being happy about that just to get that uh, under my belt and get home and get some sleep. <laughs> yeah, well, you, well, you kept a clean sheet, so that, well, that was impressive. It's, uh, I was surprised West Ham didn't chip in a bit to help with the travelling as well. Like, they just let you go halfway around the world. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> no, true, true. It should have been there. True. <laughs> <Probably predictable. laughs> uh, well, Craig, you played an important role in our cup win against Blackburn, saving a crucial penalty. How disappointed were you to eventually lose your place to Bernard Lamar? Well, I was, actually, because I... I I mean, Leslie Lee had told me, uh, you've got to keep playing really well. You know, they're going to, if you make a mistake or any slip-ups, you're, uh, they're putting Bernard in. This is, the, this is the case you live in right now. And I did take a little bit of an injury, and then he got in. And so after, I think we beat Man City, then we beat Blackburn on penalties. And I think we had Arsenal in the next round, I believe. And it went to penalties. And we ended up losing that game. And uh, I was on the bench. I was disappointed, but obviously hoping we were going to win the game. And, uh, yeah, I was disappointed, obviously, not to have held the position um, for the next round of the FA Cup at that time. We were doing quite well, and uh, we pushed Arsenal all the way and unfortunately didn't get through it. But we had Arsenal again, I think, in that year or the year after in the quarterfinals of the – or the last round of 16 in the League Cup as well at home, which was a terrific uh, – game we played as well I think Ian Wright scored against us on that particular game but yeah like I say ups and downs disappointments at times and being a part of that really great FA Cup run of that year against some really good opposition I was disappointed I wasn't uh, playing that game absolutely yeah, you, sorry go on Dave no no just quickly I know Craig's mentioned Les Seeley a couple of times there God rest his soul and I just wanted you to kind of tell us a little bit about what it was like working with Les and what you thought about him as a man because apparently he was a real character yes he was um great character streetwise um honest great goalkeeper coach great with the young kids uh, always had fun thing with goalkeeping coaching is especially when you're working day in, day out, is you got to keep it lively. You need a character there and somebody who isn't particularly boring. And Les isn't boring, wasn't boring at all. Uh, he was, it was great that we would do competitions and training. Goalkeeper coach, coach would have us, whoever lost would have to sing a song or do something crazy or whatever, whatever. And that would include even young trialists. So uh, these young trials would have to come in. And I think we used to make them sing a song um, any song of their choice uh, yeah. uh, before we started training. So it's pretty interesting and character building for some young 
13, 14 year old lads. <laughs> but he was honest because there was a couple of young lads came in and I tell you, I, I pulled Les aside. I was like, Les, he's up on the kid. Like, really? Fuck, the kid's 14. And he, and he hammers a couple out his head, right? Just right out of his nose. And he's like, he can't catch it, Craig. He's like, if he can't catch the fucking ball, what, I, I don't have to look at distribution or crosses or <laughs> you can't catch the ball. So he told him, he goes, go in come back when you can catch the ball and we can go to the next so much fun so much fun leslie was amazing yeah so much fun he was great he yeah. was brilliant with um, the away fans as well. I always remember like going to away games in that era and obviously he'd be warming up you and Ludo or whatever right. the keepers were and he'd have such great banter with uh, the away fans as well that he actually really made away days quite a good laugh. That's so, right, he did, yeah. yeah. I can't remember he'd be warming us up and, and he would always get involved with somebody. Somebody would be yelling something like, Sealy, you're shite and whatever. <laughs> and I remember playing at Coventry and I was like, He's taking a beating from the fans at Coventry, right? He's warming me up. And I'm like, Les, I thought you played for these guys. Like, what's going on? He goes, well, he said, I, I said the best thing about Coventry was the road out of it when I left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm like, oh, that might do it. <laughs> well, they're probably a bit fed up because there's a British phrase that you'll send someone to Coventry when they're when you want to get rid of them, isn't there? So uh, it's like yeah, Coventry right. being hammered from all, all angles. I mean, you, you did play with some great goalkeepers looking back at West Ham, but which one do you think was the best that you played with? Ooh, you know, I would have to say Ludo. Mm. I would have to say Ludo. Yeah, mm. and that's tough. That's tough because. You know, Shaka was great. David James, great athlete. Lama. Les Seeley was around there. You know, he was goalkeeper coach. Bob. You know, they're really good goalkeepers, all of them. And none of them, well, we would think would ever let you down. But uh, Ludo, was, Ludo was special. And I always uh, thought he was when I played against him with Ipswich over the years as well. Mm. I think you would have been sort of coming when you joined the club. He would have been coming slightly towards the end of his career then as well. So it's interesting right. you should you should say that because obviously if you sort of fast forward or rewind, whatever the case, five years before that, he would have been probably even better. So that that shows what a phenomenal keeper he he actually was. You know, That's right. it's so good. Um, yeah. So in 1999, another player that was brought in was uh, the legendary Paolo Di Canio. Um, he joined the club, and what were your first impressions of? him as a player and a man well we knew we had talent uh when we brought him in remember he he there wasn't a lot of clubs were wanting paolo they wanted his talent but they didn't want all the baggage mm. and that was a problem for some clubs so i think we got him for a million is that about right i think it was yeah. about a million yeah, pounds about that, yeah something like that and I remember the very first training session he came in and, and some of the stuff he was doing on the ball was magical and he had this one particular goal and I remember Frank Lampard senior was standing on the other side of the field and very first training session for Paolo and uh he's done this amazing bit of skill and he's yelled over to Frank he's like Frank we've got ourselves a fucking bargain <laughs> <laughs> and did they ever have themselves a bargain uh, yeah, you know like just a great you know what a character what a character like just you just never knew what you're gonna get from paolo i mean he did have some mood swings as well mm. um 
and then there'd be stuff like traveling. We're on a plane sitting at Luton <laughs> airport or Stansted. I can't remember which one flying up North and I'm sitting up near the front. I think Harry's a couple rows in front of me. And then the stewardess is uh, sitting there, the hostess. And she says, excuse me, sir. Just we're sitting on the tarmac, ready to take off. Just ready. Got the clearance. And you hear this, excuse me, sir. You have to sit down. And I look behind me and here comes Paolo right up the middle going, no, no, let me off. Let me off. I've had a dream. I've, <laughs> I've heard this before. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Harry, tell it in your own Harry, words. Tell it in your own yeah. words. Harry turns around. He looks back and he's like, Paolo, <laughs> what's fucking wrong with you? So anyway, he's like, no, no, Harry, Harry, I'm, I, I, I want off. And he's like, and then they're, they're, they're saying, no, listen, he's either got to sit down or we've got, like, we can't take off. He wouldn't sit down. We, we ended up taxiing back to the gate and letting Paolo off. And then there was a board of directors member who had to get off with him. I can't remember who it was. And had to drive Paolo way up north, freaking Manchester or something. Uh, all because Paolo had a dream that the plane was going to go down. So <laughs> it was crazy as he was when we did eventually take off. You're kind of wondering. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, he's fucking crazy. But <laughs> I hope he's not right. <laughs> well, I don't, know what that says. I don't know what it says about his teammates. The fact he had this premonition and didn't try and get you boys off with him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He never said, no, lads, you've got to get off with me. No, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't suppose in the arrival, in the sort of while you were waiting, uh, you, you, uh, Bernard had left some of his smokes around, hadn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Might have calmed it down a bit if he did. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God Almighty. Yeah. But yeah, so finished... Paolo was amazing. He was yeah. amazing. Obviously, he turned out to be one, you know, the great one of the greats and uh, loved by the West Ham fans, and rightly so. Uh, he loved West Ham. He really did. It's, it's, he's not full of crap. He he really did love the football club and loved the teammates and. Loved the banter, loved getting involved. It was, yeah, he was, he, was, he was terrific. And what a fantastic talent, you know. You know, he never had a great deal of pace, but he, he had that ability to, you know, get a yard on people, close quarters, control. Um, I wish we had the video of him basically training every day because there was highlight reels virtually every day of Paolo and something that he's doing, some incredible volley, very similar to the one he hit against Wimbledon and the, uh, you know, one of the goals, mm. very best goals in history for West Ham. And I was honored to be part of that. I always joke that I might've rolled the ball out to <laughs> John Moncur and somewhere in that build up. <laughs> I also remember was Steve, Steve Lomas on that goal, Trevor Sinclair crosses the ball. Yeah. But, Steve Lomas actually does an overlap around Trevor Sinclair, runs 40 yards, wants to get around the back of Trevor and lay down the line for a cross. And as soon as he does that, as he's passing Trevor, he's basically told him, basically, you're a dick because he's going to cross the ball and I just ran 40 yards and you're not laying me in. So he's like, he's basically fucked him off. And next thing you know, it's like, Paolo hits this unbelievable volley and he's like, oh. Oh, okay. Right. That's not bad. Not bad. <laughs> From your perspective, obviously being in gold, did you just literally look at that and think, oh my word, what a finish? Did you, did you know then how good it was when it went in? Yes, I did. I did. Yeah. Uh, never had I seen a goal, you know, in a stadium where you're, you're playing and, and there's something out of nothing that is that brilliant that only football can 
give you. And that place erupted in from mm. nothing to like zero to 60 in a split second. It was just exploded. And it was, it's, it's kind of a shame because that end zone was a little bit empty because Wimbledon, you know, they, they were there. Wimbledon's Wimbledon. They didn't bring a lot of away fans yeah. <laughs> um, and it was empty, but uh, man, oh man, it was just that place was lit up when I hit the back of the net. Everybody it's, knew they'd witnessed something really, really special. It's so mm. funny because I, I was at that game and my season ticket for 26 years was right on the halfway line of the East Stand. So I'm kind of just behind where, you know, Trevor's pinged that ball over and I, yeah. can, rem- I can remember it so clearly considering that was like over 20 years ago now i can remember it so clearly as if i was there yesterday it's just one of yeah. those iconic moments to just stick with you for forever and you're right the, the the way you've described the crowd is spot on the way it just suddenly just went from like being very solemn to just oh my word yes. what we just Bang, yeah and everybody's yeah. looking around at each other just going holy shit, that is yeah. <laughs> well do you know it's, it's funny you say that because that that is the only goal. I was at that game as well. I was in the Bobby Moore lower. And that's the only goal I think I've ever seen in my life where you did just take, everyone just took a kind of split second to think, did that just fucking happen? Yeah. yeah. That, that jaw dropping, I can't believe I've just witnessed that. That was unbelievable before you broke out into euphoric cheer. You know, it was. Yeah, that, yeah, that that's right. Um, it is for 15, 20 minutes after that, the whole fan, it was just a rumbling. Everybody was just like, oh, it was just, just continually yeah. rumbling. It was, it was hard to concentrate just because of <laughs> what we had seen. And yet, you know, we still had to finish off the game, but it was like, wow, that's, that's. What yeah. I think so about that game as well is that Freddie Canute made his debut in that game, I think, as well. And he'd had such a good debut, I seem to remember. And I thought, wow, we'd signed this really brilliant forward. And then, yeah. or it was maybe certainly, it might have been his home, like his home debut if it wasn't his debut. And then, um, and then that goal almost kind of overshadowed how well Canute had played because he had a fantastic debut that day as well. No one talks about great. it, do they? No, they don't. You don't even remember it. But I just remember it was such a, you know, I can remember thinking, <laughs> poor Freddie, he's been overshadowed here and he's done so well. <laughs> yeah, so yeah Freddie was Freddie was a good player, man. He was yeah, mm, was really a good, good player. player. Yeah, he was a good player. We finished fifth that year. Um, unbelievable team. Um, and what a season it was. That was that was a really good time to go and watch West Ham. Why do you think we were as good as we were and achieved what we achieved? I mean, was it a, a combination of quality and camaraderie? And and also, what did it mean to win the Intercontinental Cup and start looking at a European tour? Yeah, I think, it, yeah, it's part of the camaraderie, obviously, recruiting. Uh, Harry had a great eye for what he wanted in players and uh, brought in really good players. Uh, he didn't care about the strong characters. He, in fact, I think he, he liked to bring in strong characters because he felt he could manage them or it was a challenge to manage them. Um, you know, guys like John Hutcherson, Neil Ruddick, you know, DeCanio. John Moncur, like these guys are really not easy to manage those types of players. And he really, uh, I think he liked it. He enjoyed it. And, uh, and he had to fight uh, with them sometimes in the dressing rooms to argue with them. And uh, I think he, he, he thrived on that. And uh, because of that little bit of an edge in the dressing room as well, that I think it, it, it and the quality I think that we had, and we did, we did certainly have quality. And those young players coming through, the Lampars and Rio Ferdinand, Michael Carrick, Glenn Johnson, Joe Cole. I mean, this was great timing as well um, that these young players were pushed in at the right time. Frank Lampard might have even been pushed in probably, I'd say maybe a year 
probably too early. Um, uh, but saying that, he developed incredibly quickly uh, and would never – saw a player work any harder on the training ground than somebody like Frank Lampard and all those guys to be in particular. But they're just a terrific young group that can only dream that if West Ham could have kept the hold of them, um, what we could have achieved. Mm, yeah, I make you right. I make you right. When you look at all the different characters, because there were so many at that time, weren't there? Who do you think was the biggest character? You know, it's pretty hard to beat John Moncur. <laughs> yeah, he, he was he was another one. You just never knew what you could get. I I mean, in modern day, you could never do this. But I remember he showed he was Eddie. Uh, I think it was Eddie Gillins. He was a old uh, kit yeah, man that had been yeah. around for years. Um, he had uh, according to John, he wasn't leaving his kit out, and he would leave maybe some socks missing or a pair of shorts or something like that. And John was always having a go at him, like. Come on, Eddie! Like, what the fuck? You're always you're missing shit. John shows up at training. <laughs> he shows up at training late one day. We're already out on the field. He comes in, and I guess his kit isn't even there. So John thinks, "All right." So he puts his boots on and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's pouring. It's pouring outside. It's like four degrees and pouring. <laughs> and John comes running out and Harry looks over and he's just like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and you got a small group of fans there and they're watching John run around, do the warm up naked. And then he finishes the warm up and then he's like, I better go get something on. because <laughs> It does a butt, it does a slide right in front of the fans. About half a dozen of them. There's a slide and a puddle right in front of them, just a body slider. <laughs> <laughs> he was a Oh, there's story after story. Then Monks was, I remember Monks was injured and they were carrying him on the stretcher. But do you remember this when he was behind the goal and the stretcher guys dropped him? I don't remember that. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. <laughs> He's actually on the, on the bench. They're going behind the goal. And it's tight and it, whatever. And it's got a bit of a slope there up the park. And next thing you know, Bunker flips off. <laughs> so I'm in goal and he jumps. I can see this going on behind me and he jumps up and he starts cursing these two guys. <laughs> what are you doing? You're so <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's now a born again Christian now, so uh, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's uh, completely changed. We had him at our events a couple of times, and uh, you know what? Yeah. He's covering his bases. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's done so many things that he's totally shouldn't. That you know what? if this is actually true and there is a God somewhere, I'm covering my bases. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. Think so. But he keeps his clothes on these days, anyway. I can tell you that, Matt. He certainly oh, did that. Get naked. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, was, another one he was singing. At, at, uh, Steve Lomas had a uh, housewarming party and he had a marquee behind his house set up and there was a big party. And Ian Wright singing, good singer, by the way, singing on the mic and doing whatever with the band. And, and next thing you know, Monks is up there and he's naked again. <laughs> and and he, do, he, does this, he does this back roll, kind of a back flip thing on the stage and ends up pinned between the stage and the tent with his ass pointing up in the air and he's completely pinned he's naked his balls are hanging up in the air <laughs> i remember somebody I remember his wife was there somebody said to her hey look at your husband look at, look at and she just looked up and she just just shakes her head 
I don't even know what to do anymore. <laughs> that is brilliant. We, we should have just done a whole podcast on Moncur stories, I think. Yeah. It's brilliant. As you were sort of at the club, every time it seemed like the main keeper, whether it be Ludo or Shaka, um, had got injured and it was your chance to kind of step in and maybe cement yourself as, as the keeper, you seemed to pick up an injury roughly at the same time. Is, was that like a real frustration for you during your time at the club? Uh, yes, of course. I mean, picking up injuries or losing your spot for any reason is never great, especially if it's just an injury, but it's, it is part and parcel of the game. And, uh, I got in because of injuries, uh, Shaka got hurt. Um, and I was in for quite a long time. Um, Stephen Bywater. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's part of it. And, uh, like I said, in the Shaka, uh, when I got hurt, he got in. And obviously when you got goalkeepers of that quality, uh, they don't make many mistakes. That's the difference between yeah. that top end and and yeah. uh, maybe lower ends is that on any given day, goalkeepers at the lower end can play well, but can they do it consistently week in, week out and make very few mistakes? That's really the difference. And at that level, guys like Shaq and David James, and they're not going to be making too many mistakes. So really it will be an injury that will give you your opportunity, but you're never cheering for that, of course. Yeah. Um, but that's primarily the only way you're going to get a chance. Mm, it's that time, Craig, because you played in the 7-1 defeat against Man United, having featured in a 9-0 loss there for Ipswich. Mm-hmm. How much do you hate Old Trafford? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, after all these years, um, it's softened, of course. Uh, I had results at uh, Old Trafford. We had some really good results with Ipswich there. And we beat Manchester United uh, the year we got beat 9-0. Uh, we beat them at home. Mm. Um, so we picked up three points against every team. We would have stayed in the Premier League. That's just the bottom line. Um, heading into that game, I'd only just got back from the Gold Cup, so a CONCACAF Gold Cup that I was playing in. And for the two-week spell that we were playing in that tournament, it was a part of my career where you just – I never, I could feel like I couldn't be beat. It was just, everything was, you're going to get your fingertips to everything. And, and then next day you end up in England, you end up at Old Trafford and you can't get a hand on anything. (laughs) It's amazing. You're just like, you just can't believe it sometimes. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's talk about the highs and lows of winning the, the gold cup over here for a country like Canada, you know, never done anything like that. In fact, nobody's ever won it except for the United States and, uh, and Mexico. Um, and then coming back and just being humbled so freaking quickly in a seven, one defeat. And I think we actually scored first. I think. Yeah, we did. Palo one shot. <laughs> one shot. Palo, yeah. Scored first, and he was also in that tournament. I played against him, Costa Rica in that tournament a few weeks before. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's just interesting how it just flips like that. Uh, the Never great. The 9-0 obviously was a little bit different because Manchester United were chasing goal differential. So when most games you see that are 5-6-0, 4-0, teams are just trying to see it out. Let's don't get injured. We've got the three points. We've got a good goal differential. Everything's fine. But they were chasing Blackburn on goal differential. So they, the, the waves just kept coming against the team that were basically lambs to the slaughter. We were, we were done mentally, physically, you know, uh, other than being relegated, we were relegated. Mm. And uh, that was a very tough time. But the West Ham situation, we, we, had, the, we had the knack. It's amazing as, as well as I mean, all the games I started at West Ham, 
I only lost one game at Upton Park, and that was against Arsenal and Ian Wright in that in that cup game. Um, other, otherwise, I never lost there. Away from home, we did. We were susceptible to a big loss. I think we lost big at Blackburn in the league. Uh, Shaka played unbelievably well. I think we lost six or seven there, and it was unbelievable. Because <laughs> when he walked off, I said, "Shaq," they said. That could have been the record right there, buddy. That could have been my record. You could have you, <laughs> they could have beaten us more than nine nil on that day. Uh, so it was interesting how we we did uh, have this moments uh, where we got really well well and truly thumped away from home. But um, for whatever reason, I don't sure exactly. I can't put my finger on why. Maybe mm. it was me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's football, mate. Isn't it? At the end of the day, it's football. Yep. Happens. Um, so, so, so the next season saw the sale of Rio Ferdinand. Um, how significant was that? And should the, with hindsight, should the club have kept on to him? Well, of course, in hindsight, and it wasn't, well, not even in hindsight, the club knew they, were, they should have kept a hold of him. But financially, could they afford to? They wanted to build that new stand. Mm. Um, finances were tight in some areas. We didn't have a, gazillionaire as an owner um and it was just a situation of the club at the time um being able to hold on to somebody like that so we ended up going to uh leeds united i mean people yeah. seen that manchester united but that wasn't until after so it was disappointing uh i never as young as he was i never played with a center back with the talent on the ball that rio had um he was your what you see center backs is he's the he's a man city he's a pep guardiola type center back who can control the ball has a good great distribution uh, reads the game really well uh, wants it in tight space wants to build out of the back he was all of that and you can see why he was such a talent and why he went to leeds and then on to manchester united he was a different level and uh, playing with a center back in front of you like that with that kind of talent was was incredible and a different game altogether uh, he always there to help you get out of trouble. Wanted it in tight spots. I didn't even want to give it to him in tight spots. He was, you know, but he just didn't care. Didn't care. He was just so good on the ball and uh, and confident. And somebody so young to be like that was incredibly impressive. And that that goes with Michael Carrick and Frank as well, Lampard, and Glenn Johnson, and those guys too. So mm-hmm. it was uh, it was amazing. Yeah, they went on to do all right for themselves, didn't they, as well? Mm. Um, during the next season, Craig, you found out that you had testicular cancer. How much of a shock was that to you, and how did you deal with that at the time? Well, obviously a shock. Um, how did I deal with it? Well, I was 35. I was uh, obviously had a pretty good career. I was, you know, I'd been there 18 years or so. And... Uh, you're just obviously at that your your gear changes and you're just going to self mode and you just want to make sure that you're healthy and fit and try to get through it. And, you know, for your daughter and for your loved ones and things like that, it changes everything. I can't say it changed my perspective because I really did value things anyway. Uh, I felt, um, but it was a shocker of course, and, uh, went away and dealt with that, um, got through it. And, uh, that was part of the West Ham thing that when it ended, Glenn Rhoda was actually the manager at that time. And I was in the process before having uh, the testicular cancer. Um, 
of negotiating a contract. They at 35, I wanted a two-year contract. Of course, you always try to get that. Uh, West Ham were offering a year, uh, which is understandable. And I was kind of sitting around, and they actually thought we could get a two-year deal, but might have to wait some time. I go off to do the uh, chemo and do whatever I have to do to get better um, from that. And then when I was fit after you know say seven eight months later coming back to the club um jonathan barnett was my agent he said under the circumstances we wanted the two years but under these circumstances we're quite happy to take the one year and west ham said that offer's not on the table anymore so nice. i was basically forced out of the club just like that as simple as quickly as that that's and, typical uh, west ham that's just yeah, cool. it was really disappointing and i and i really feel that I mean, Glenn was a new manager. He wanted to make his mark, and he's under a certain amount of pressures as well. But I, I felt that if it was Harry, it was still the manager at that time, it would have been dealt with differently. I, like I said, I thought that Harry had our backs. And uh, in a situation like that, I don't think he would have allowed um, – me to just be thrown into the the, the tip so uh, but that was what kind of happened and some of the players were great they sort of rallied behind me and sort of helped the club, the club sort of support me a little bit uh, on that uh, um, Stuart Pierce was excellent Steve Lomas was supportive John Moncur was supportive Shaka they were all really brilliant in supporting me through that and and uh, it was a shock and it was it was difficult because I, I felt I could still play for a few more years I wanted to play till I was 40 um, but at that point, then looking for another club as damaged goods, somebody who's got cancer, coming out of cancer, nobody really wanted to take a gamble. And I just felt that maybe it was the right time uh, to retire. I had an offer to do some television work back in Canada for the Premier League here and uh, ended up doing that. Uh, did, I mean, did Glenn Roder sort of say anything to you? Did he try to justify the decision? I mean, it's just it's just an awful sort of scenario to, to hear of, really. I mean, how did he sort of try and justify well, yeah, that to you? He, he, yeah, we sat there across from his desk. I mean, he was under some pressures, too. I'm not sure how much pressure was put on by the ownership at that moment, looking through mm-hmm. everything and dealing with it and just thinking, well, it's not probably the right thing to do, but um, this is what we will do. Um, and the club was, you know, struggling. And I think it got relegated the year after that. But uh, so I can't put it all on Glen Rhoda, but uh, certainly something within the club wasn't quite right and uh, felt quite disappointed, uh, obviously, about that. And, you know, with everything that went on with, you know, Les passing away and just how, how much I really loved being around the club, uh, it, that was one of the hardest times of my career, even though I was quite satisfied about what I'd done playing. I, I wasn't quite ready to, to retire, um, but was kind of forced upon me a little bit. And uh, that's kind of the way it goes, but um, can't have it always, I guess. Mm, well, thank God you did come through, mate. And uh, we really appreciate you sharing that with us, mm-hmm. Craig, because none of these things are um, not easy to talk about, but um, respect the fact yeah. that you did. Um, you've been heavily involved in television since retiring. Do you intend to stay in the media or do you have any other ambitions? Well, yeah, I do really like the media side of things. I mean, I did it for 18 years and then our station actually lost the, uh, the rights to zone, which you guys probably know well over there. Um, mm. British company that's uh, owned by a Ukrainian billionaire. And I think they're, the business model seems interesting, but they, they don't have to have any jobs in Canada. They can run all this straight out of the UK and people are just on a platform. So the 
sort of standard sort of traditional television uh, gets pushed on the wayside. And what I worry about from that standpoint is the we have this great growth of the it's the number one sport participating sport in Canada. It's not the most popular to watch spectator wise, but we don't also have the quality of the Premier League here. But we do have uh, MLS. Um, mm. So it's been it was a lot of fun, but at the same time, the DAZN model certainly killed uh, any opportunities for doing. Premier League for the time being in uh, in Canada because they're just running everything from the UK. So there was a lot of jobs in the footballing world and television that were lost because of that deal. Um, it's unfortunate, and uh, we'll see what happens down the road. Mm. So what are you doing at the moment, then, Craig? Nothing at the moment. I'm mean, uh, not a lot. I'm doing a little bit of coaching for some young goalkeeper coaches uh, and goalkeepers around the Ontario area. I've uh, been involved with some initiatives around the PPE drives and things like this to help our healthcare workers in the meantime over the last few weeks to keep myself busy that's been very interesting and pleasurable at the same time to try to help out um, and uh, basically looking yeah to, to, to do whatever I've got a few of those things going on but I do miss the football I do miss covering it and uh, there is a, a new league here in Canada the Canadian Premier League that started up last year uh, small league, seven teams across the country. Uh, this is a really bad time, obviously, trying to start up a league uh, that's second years in a bloody pandemic. So <laughs> it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that league. And uh, I was going to do some television things around their platform, uh, but that got put on hold until mm -hmm. this is over. So we'll see what happens with that. But unlike the Premier League, who can play in front of empty stadiums and still do okay, um, there's a lot of leagues that rely, well, like lower divisions in England that rely on gate receipts and uh, financially this is going to be crushing for them and I hope they can survive. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you get to spend much time watching West Ham um, where you are and what you're, with what you're doing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. I watch the majority of the games. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And you were there for the final game at um, Upton Park, I believe, as well. That's right. Yeah, I came over for that. Yeah, I hung mm -hmm. out with Mox and uh, Lomas and the guys and Trevor Sinclair. We had an absolute blast. Smoked so smoke some weed with Bernard Lamar. I mean, were you emotional on that day, obviously, as we all were? How did it happen? I was, yeah. You? And, you know, interesting, I... I I had never been to Upton Park and watched it as a fan. Uh, mm. I, I sat in the subs bench and watched games, but I'd never been in the stands and watched a game at Upton Park before. And that was the very first game that had ever happened. And sitting up where my, where the family sits for all the players uh, and watching the game from up there uh, was really, really special. And being in the last game at Upton Park was very emotional of course and I uh, knew how special that ground was and it was never going to be the same after that you, you just knew it the new you know Olympic Stadium is uh, everything that uh, Upton Park isn't or Have was. Have you been to a match at the London Stadium? I haven't been to a match yet no no uh, Paul Pesca Salidos and Karen's husband has uh, asked me to come over a few times but I haven't actually spent a, uh, seen a game there yet lots of games yeah. on TV and unfortunately they don't the size never really sort of had a really, really good run um, at the new place. Winning, winning solves a lot of problems, obviously. Mm, yeah. and, uh, people would like that stadium a lot better if they were winning for sure. And uh, it's been tough, but uh, staying in the Premier League and there'll be better days ahead for sure.
Mm. Mm. Be interesting to get your thoughts on the stadium when you do get the chance to go. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I can tell you, playing in stadiums like the Olympic Stadium, um, even when you look at, you know, playing in Italy, and that there was old Italian stadiums uh, with tracks around them, mm. or you know, you could see why that was a failed model. Like uh, everybody now in their new stadiums, you know, even over in North America, like Los Angeles, has built a couple of really nice footballing stadiums that are tight and just perfect for. Mm crowds and that sort of thing that's that's the way football is really seen as the best and with the atmosphere and and you're always going to see at an olympic stadium that it was never going to be tight it's never going to be up in park it was never going to be that that uh, difficult place to go play and as a player coming to a stadium of that size and being that far away from the crowd makes a big difference like mm. it's much easier i remember going to up to park playing for west Ham or for any player ipswich and thinking, oh, geez, you know, as much as it was a great atmosphere, it was so tough to get results there. And that crowd were on freaking top here. They could grab the back of the net. And it was just mm-hmm. it was insane. And, and it was also like that playing, knew how difficult it was for teams coming there. And you, you, you just sort of, you know, fed off the energy. Um, mm. That's going to be difficult in a bigger stadium like that. It just mm. is. So it's uh, not coming back. I have to deal with it. But uh, it's, it is sad to see. I mean, we do mm. miss it up the fourth, of course. Yeah, no, well said, well said, and I agree. Um, obviously, Scotland has been cancelled now in terms of uh, their football. Germany, they've gone back to playing their football. In terms of the UK, Craig, what would you personally do with the current season? Quite honestly, um, if it had nothing to do with money, I would cancel it completely. I would award Liverpool the championship. I think that's only fair. Um, I'm not sure how we would sit, set, set up the rest of it. Um, this is the problem. You have the European spots. Um, you have relegation spots. I think Watford played one less game. There's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a disaster for every league and every tournament, every competition. Uh, it really is difficult. I can see why they're keeping the plans um, or keeping the ideas open to continue the season and finish it off but quite honestly with the situation as it is in the uk i would uh i would cancel it i think it's a a bridge too far at this present moment and just pick up again next year Mm. Mm. craig thank you so much for coming on mate it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you Mm. thanks for having me guys it's been a pleasure talking to you as well and good luck with everything yeah likewise look after yourself and we wish you the best of luck for the future craig pleasure thanks guys you too Right, okay, that's it for tonight. We hope you enjoyed the show as much as we did. Take care, be lucky, and until next week, come on you irons. When you love riding a motorcycle, you want to ride it everywhere, even getting a dental checkup. Mr. Carter, wouldn't you prefer the chair? I'm fine on my bike, Doc. Well, let me know if you feel any discomfort. And when you love saving money, you want to save even more. That's why GEICO makes it easy to bundle your motorcycle and car insurance. All done, Mr. Carter. Remember to brush, floss, and lubricate your drive chain regularly. Kickstart your savings with GEICO Motorcycle. Bundle and save on the things you love. Switching and saving with GEICO is easy, so you're free to ponder life's big questions. Like, why do people say it goes without saying and then say it anyway? I mean, if it really goes without saying... You should instead not say it and just give a knowing look? Well, folks, it goes without saying. Uh, what does? The thing that I'm not going to say. Okay. Switch and save with GEICO. It's easier than you think.
Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.